Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Lisa Hyland, and today I'm excited to share this week's episode, where we look at China's climate ambitions and whether China could emerge as a committed global leader in climate policy. My colleague Lachlan Carey here in the CSIS Energy Program talks with Deborah Lear with the Paulson Institute and Han Chen with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Han, Deborah, and Lachlan look at how committed Chinese leaders are to forwarding climate policies at home. They also discuss the domestic energy landscape, especially the resurgence of coal investments, a possible slowing of renewable energy investments, and the future for Chinese green finance. Finally, Lachlan asked Han and Deborah about China's international financing of energy and infrastructure projects, looking at both the opportunities and challenges to greening its international investments, especially those under the Belt and Road Initiative. Let's turn it over to Lachlan. Well, thank you both for joining Energy 360 today. And I'd like to start by talking about the issue of the moment, which is COP25 and, and Chinese leadership. Deborah, you recently wrote an article asking whether China is still the global leader on climate change. Do you mind setting up the context for Chinese climate action leading into this week's talk? And why are people worrying about China's leadership right now? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on this. And we really appreciate it. We know CSIS is doing some really impressive work in this area. And we have watched very carefully over the years what China has been doing in the energy space. In fact, Secretary Paulson, when he was at Treasury, was very focused on this issue in the context of his priorities with China. Mm -hmm. And in recent years, we have been very pleased that China was willing to make, one, addressing the environmental issues a priority, and two, that at least their overall emissions were going down. But as their economy is slowing down, and we think also with the outside pressure not being what it was, we're seeing emissions overall starting to rise again. We're still seeing that they're financing and bringing on new both coal mines but coal plants and looking at the Belt and Road Initiative that they still are supporting the building of, and in many cases they're actually financing, the building of uh, coal fire power plants. And so we are simply asking the question, and we were in China recently meeting with some of the leaders raising this as well, is this still one of the priorities for China? And Han, I know you also wrote a recent piece arguing that China's committed to its pledges under the Paris Agreement and is unlikely to follow America's lead in, in abandoning that agreement. How far does this commitment extend at the international level? And, and what do you think we can expect to see from China at the current COP25 meetings? So looking at China's participation in the COP this year, the obvious thing is that even with U.S. withdrawal, the leadership in China has signaled over and over that they're committed to staying in Paris. They've said that in the context of the G20 and in conversations with Macron and others. What we need to see from China, though, is real ambition on stepping up its climate target, its NDC and looking ahead to September of this year when there's going to be an EU-China summit, there's expectations, high expectations that both countries should come forward with something more ambitious. But as Deborah said, the politics domestically, the trade war and other outside factors are making it quite difficult for those within China who are pushing for more ambition to really have a voice. And even with the U.S. reiterating that it will withdraw from the Paris Agreement this year, the first time that it could actually officially do so, we have seen China continuing to participate in these forums. They've been pushing for an assessment of 2020 progress by all countries on the Paris goals, but we are not seeing them really come forward with a, a more ambitious um, set of 
potential options for their NDC. Yeah. So I'd like to think a little bit more about those ambitions and, and what's really driving that. Deborah, perhaps this one for you. You mentioned China's slowing economy. What is it about a slowing economy in China that that is meaning it's pulling back from those ambitions? Well, as we look at the steps that China has taken, I think they started first by addressing what was politically most necessary to address and maybe easiest to address, and that's the air and water pollution. And so they could move factories, they could shut down old factories, but as they start to go into some of the more difficult issues and structural issues, as the economy slows down, obviously there's concern about putting people out of work. Uh, It's harder to get some of the provincial governors and the mayors whose uh, job promotions are linked to job creation and demonstrating economic growth that they'll take the kind of difficult steps that they need to be taking to address uh, some of these environmental challenges. And so... Um, what we're hoping and what one of the things that we are focused on is how can we use market mechanisms to try and promote different behavior. And we think that there are actually a lot of economic opportunities that would come if China would start to open up some of the sectors more broadly to foreigners participating. Goldman Sachs did a very good study a couple of years ago estimating that the market in China for environmental goods and services could be up to a trillion dollars in addressing things like waste management and soil uh, cleanup, some of the really pressing issues, more pressing in many ways than air pollution. So if we could see that China starts to take those steps and we're encouraged by the recent documents that they put out that were opening up, or in some categories, environmental goods and services. So we think there's potential there. The challenges in that document and also in their definition of green bonds, we still see that they're defining, for example, investment in coal as a green investment. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I can only imagine that the current trade war isn't exactly helping incentivize China to open up its market. Well, you're right. But I think in many ways, what has incentivized them to do is diversify away from the United States. So I don't think it was necessarily the U.S. that was driving them to have more ambitious commitments on the environment, although certainly that was a priority of the Obama administration. I think it's been international pressure. I don't think the United States is the only one who's not who's pulled back a little bit in its aggression in implementing some of these commitments. One of the challenges that we've seen most countries run into is even though they have very bold ambitions around climate, the question has been how do they pay for them? Yeah, exactly. Han, turning back to the the international arena, what do you see as the key determining factors for China in terms of stepping up its its ambition and, and entering into those talks with Europe in a position where it can really convince others to come along with it, to be more ambitious and to step up its targets, particularly leading into next year's COP, when I think Chinese leadership will be extremely important in terms of convincing other countries to, to really up their game with their proposed new NDCs. Yeah, so on the question of looking at China's update of its NDC and the potential to do so within the you know deadline of 2020, which is when countries were expected to come forward with higher targets. So here's where you know the progress has happened already with China. The goal for them was to peak emissions by 2030. They're well on their way to doing it by 2030. In fact, we think it's quite possible they would do it well in advance of that between 2020 and 2025. Unfortunately, in the last year, what we've seen is emissions rising 
overall. So even though coal emissions have been relatively you know, at a plateau the past few years, sort of fluctuating up and down, the peak was in 2013 for coal and it has gone down and then in the last year gone back up just a little bit. What has happened is we've seen a rise in emissions from oil and gas from China. But overall, there's a really good chance that it will meet the, the peak by the deadline in its current NDC. In terms of emissions intensity and how much emissions are emitted per unit of GDP, there's also significant progress, and we think they'll be able to meet the targets they've set for themselves on there. On renewable energy, obviously, China is leader as a leader, and they have you know plans to install 950 gigawatts of non-fossil energy. So that's probably about the size of the U.S. overall capacity, including all fossil fuels. Um, so we've seen high progress in that area and in terms of increasing the forest cover. What we need to see, though, is ambition that is more in line with the 1.5 degree goal of Paris. So it's been shown many times, including by the latest UN Environment Program reports, that you know, most countries are off track to a 1.5 world. And so every country needs to step up its ambition. For China, that could mean announcing that it will peak its emissions much sooner than 2030. We need to see China come back to the table next year with a much higher target. We need to see China come forward with an even higher intensity target, showing that even as it grows its GDP, it's doing so in a much less carbon intensive way. And we could see potentially including things that haven't been included in the climate target in the past. So including non-CO2 gases. So looking outside of sort of the traditional power sector and, and other things that are covered into looking at refrigerants, you know, HFCs that are used for, um, you know, refrigeration, air conditioning, so forth. Dealing with those kind of broader GHGs is a step in the right direction and potentially ways that China can improve its target for the next round of enhancements under the Paris Agreement. And do you see that ambition translating in, into a more aggressive negotiating strategy from China at all in the international arena, or is it still very much a, a domestic question? So in terms of China's positioning at, at the COP and within the Paris Agreement, there is still a, a lot of challenges politically and the recognition of CBDR, common but differentiated, differentiated responsibilities. So for China, not seeing developed countries come to the table with more ambition, not seeing the US, Europe, other OECD countries actually provide the $100 billion that they committed to supplying by 2020, that has made it more challenging for China and for other countries, whether it's India or Brazil, to come forward with more ambitious targets. Because if other countries, including the US, are pulling away, withdrawing their support, then it's much harder for all countries to have more ambitious targets. And that's because domestically, then it becomes harder for those who want climate action to claim that you know they're trying to keep up with the rest of the world. Right now, what we're seeing is China not exactly on track for a two degree target with its t climate target, but still you know ahead of the US. And so we, we need to see sort of a concerted effort, whether it's by Europe or others, to really push China to be more ambitious um, and other countries, including India as well.
Deborah, a report out last week that made headlines where China seems to be investing in a lot of new coal capacity. Recent IEA data suggests that investment in renewables is declining. So I guess I'm just wondering what your sense is of the the energy transition in China and what sort of policy China currently has in place or, or needs to put in place in order to make that transition happen. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting. I mean, I think one of the concerns that they're dealing with is the slowdown in the economy and how they start to react to that. And looking at resources globally, a second is the outside pressure. It's not just the United States, but the other developed countries and what their policies are. And if they're if they're viewed as not pursuing something as aggressive and focused on building up their own domestic economy while they're going through these difficult transitions in China to move from dependent on oil and gas to other sources of energy, it becomes much more difficult for them politically to take those kinds of actions. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see a slowdown. I think China wants to maintain a leadership role in this. And when we do talk to governors and mayors and others, even if we don't see they're taking on some of the very politically difficult issues, they are thinking very creatively about how they can be achieving the environmental goals that have been set for them by the policy leadership. Um, I was in Guangdong recently meeting with some of the financial authorities, and one of the things that was interesting that they were talking about is how they, that, that one of their priorities for next year is how to price natural resources. And that is something I know that the Chinese government very much wants to have on the table for the COP meetings next year. If they can start to do creative things like that, and I think in the area of green finance, China has been very creative and really has been a leader in driving policy, not just at home, but we're starting to see what they're doing overseas in setting standards. That could also help um, create some of the market mechanisms to change the kind of behavior that we want to see. Han? The most important part about the coal resurgence, as it's being called in China, is you know really it's it's more of a last hurrah for projects. Hopefully, that were actually approved back in you know, 2014 to like 2016. So you know it's really a bunch of local governments really pushing to finish projects, collect the revenue from them. But at the same time, it was announced this past week that you know a lot of the inefficient coal plants are going to be shut down in China as well. So you have sort of both of those things being announced around the same time. And on top of that, what I would point out is that the utilization rate of coal plants overall in China is, is quite low. And so even if you have these plants built, if they don't actually run, what matters overall at the end of the day is in the course of the year, how much coal is actually going to get burned in plants that are operating at really low utilization rates all year? I think it's it's still a little unclear. And so I think there's definitely, you know, cause for concern. I think there's reason for folks to step in and, and really talk about this with counterparts in China. But I, I wouldn't say that, you know, overall, this is guaranteeing that there will be higher emissions from that uh, sort of resurgence of coal projects that had been planned in the past. Deborah, turning back to the market mechanisms, do you have any familiarity at all with the proposed emissions trading scheme that looks likely to be implemented in China next year? Yes. We ha- uh, have carbon as one of the areas that we focus on. And one of the things we look at, we know there are many organizations who are in the environmental space who are doing terrific work around capacity building and issues like that. So we look at it more from the market, from the financial side. 
we have been talking quite frequently to the Chinese government about how to get the um, national market up and running. One of the bureaucratic challenges that they have is it's moved from the very powerful National Development and Reform Commission now to the Ministry of Ecological Environment. And so they're facing a lot of bureaucratic obstacles in trying to get industry to listen to MEE when industry traditionally used to report to the NDRC. And while they had ambitious goals when they launched of having it representative of all the major polluting industries, in the end they could only get it down to one because power was the only industry from which they could get the kind of information that they needed to actually start a trading scheme. There are some bureaucratic fights going on right now in terms of how you set up the cash market, particularly, again, when MEE is responsible for setting that up and they're not known for their financial acumen. It really is the other parts of the Chinese system, like the securities regulators who have that ability. They are tasked with setting up the futures trading market, but they can't do that until the cash market is started. So we're, we're hopeful that they can overcome some of these bureaucratic obstacles, that they can figure out a regulatory structure which needs to be developed by next year to actually start the trading. And once they start, as you know, because of China and its size, immediately it's going to be the largest trading scheme in the world. Mm-hmm. They have very grand ambitions. Once it's started, they're already starting to talk to countries along the Belt and Road about setting up mirror exchanges based on Chinese standards and allowing then companies in, say, Vietnam, Southeast Asia, Abu Dhabi, these countries that they're talking to, because their trading would be so thin, to then come trade on the national market. And that's one of the ways they're trying to build up trading. One of the challenges for the United States, though, and the European countries, is that all those markets will be based on Chinese standards. Thinking of the the Belt and Road, Han, I know that you've done a lot of work looking at the financing of coal abroad and and particularly within Belt and Road countries. And it's something that we think a lot about here at, at CSIS. How much of a problem do you see that being? And there are reports recently of Chinese foreign investment in general declining, but also within the coal sector. And I'm just wondering how you see that uh, that trend developing. So for the Belt and Road, the investments that we've seen, there has been a slowdown in recent years. And I think that reflects you know, some of the you know wild sort of investments that were being made. Obviously, Belt and Road is an umbrella term, but you know what happens in general is that you know companies from different provinces, different cities are really just going out there and making the deals themselves. And we've seen that some of those investments might not be paying off uh, quite that well. And so I think there has been a tightening of control on lending, on financing for Belt and Road projects to try and rein in some of that um, questionable spending. On coal in particular and energy investments, it is extremely challenging that China, despite really you know, having more ambition on reducing its em- emissions domestically from coal, has not put in place strong restrictions on energy investments and CO2 emissions associated with them overseas. So there are no mandatory standards, uh, regulations that really restrict that. So what we've seen is that most of the investment in Belt and Road is in fossil fuels and in the power sector, predominantly coal. And so there's tens of gigawatts of new coal projects that are planned that will have support from Chinese companies or from Chinese financial institutions. We've seen that there's also a significant amount of financing for renewables, but really not close to the scale as what we've seen for coal. 
And I mean, it's not a, a fair apples to apples comparison because when you talk about the project financing, that's only one way of looking at projects. There's also a lot of panel exports, equipment exports for solar, for example, from China and also for wind turbines. So it, it can be difficult at times to get a sense of the full scale. But what we do know is, you know, there's a, a real chicken and the egg problem as well, where countries are facing a huge energy demand growth in some cases, particularly Southeast Asia, and I think probably in Africa in the years to come. And so the Chinese are often asked to step in to help with electricity planning in some of these countries. And some countries do admittedly want the cheapest, fastest option, which might be coal because it doesn't factor in all of the environmental costs associated. And Chinese state-owned enterprises largely are also focused in coal power. So if you're negotiating with the government bilaterally between a Belt and Road country and China, you're doing electricity planning between government agencies, what you end up with is you know, predominantly coal as the energy source that is going to be pushed. But it is very much a, a sort of chicken and the egg situation where this is what the countries are demanding and what China's providing. But what we would argue is that there's a strong case to be made that China can set a priority to make low carbon investments to really provide financial incentives for those so that they're picked by those host countries instead. Uh, at the same time, other financial institutions you know, either the multilateral development banks or you know, institutions of OECD countries, export credit agencies, so forth, they also already have standards for the types of coal plants that they would finance overseas. And, and China right now does not have mandatory standards for that. And at the very least, China could adopt some form of standard for higher quality plants that address health issues, air pollution, emissions. And right now we haven't seen that. And, and that's one of the reasons that projections for emissions growth along Belt and Road are, are quite high. I'm glad you brought up how much of, of the issue does seem to be due to the, the growing energy demand in, in areas particularly like Southeast Asia and Vietnam. But just thinking about the, the push factors for a second, we've spoken a little bit about the political economy within China. And one aspect of this that, that's often discussed is the, the overcapacity problem and how much that's driving coal financing and coal, coal projects abroad. Is that something that, that you see as a significant significant issue or, or what are the, the drivers behind the, these overseas investments? So again, I mean, the sort of push and pull, it's, it's hard to disaggregate and it's also very country specific based on a political context in each case. Uh, what I can say is that, you know, there's a lot of turbine manufacturers, there's a lot of engineering, procurement and construction companies from China that are seeing a slowdown in their domestic market and are encouraged to go out, find new markets. Now that's true not only for China, that's true for the turbine manufacturers and construction companies and utilities in Japan. It's also true for Korea. And frankly, it's also true for you know companies such as General Electric in the US, right? So what we've actually seen is that, you know, even as coal is declining uh, in the US and we're seeing more retirements and we haven't seen a coal plant built in the US in, in quite a long time. Um, companies are looking for these overseas markets where environmental standards are low or coal pollution standards are non-existent and looking for opportunities to you know, make a profit. Uh, we would argue that they should be meeting much higher standards that wouldn't have such a significant impact on public health. Um, but what we've seen is that even American companies like GE, they've actually moved their coal plant manufacturing to China because what they know is 
there are very few countries in the world left who will finance these types of projects, right? So if you are working with China and you sign agreements for Belt and Road, you can still make money building coal plants, even though the U.S., you know, we've stopped building them. So I think there's definitely a push factor as well, which is that there's profit to be made uh, in building coal plants where standards are low, where you have high energy growth and you have you know, poor environmental regulation and really sort of poor pricing for all of the externalities we know are going to be associated. We've seen in Pakistan, for example, there's serious concerns about you know, air pollution, but also water. They've been building coal mines um, and plants in regions that are water stressed. This is also true in other places such as India, but this is, this is going to be a growing problem because by the time it's recognized that these projects might have a negative impact on public health and on the environment and, and on fisheries and so forth, uh, the plants are already built. And so what, what we need to do is really have higher standards up front that make it easier for countries to have informed decision-making about the type of energy mix that they want for the next 30 years. So we've spent a lot of time, I think, criticizing China so far. And so I'd like to turn to one of the issues where they've actually been a global leader, which is green finance. And obviously the Paulson Institute looks at this quite a lot. So Deborah, I guess I just want to get your sense of how important will green finance be to the low carbon transition? And what has China been doing to really establish its leadership in, in this space? I think that for any of our goals to be successful, coming up with private sector financing is going to be essential. Uh, because in most cases, the governments are only going to be able to pay a very small percentage of what's needed to make the transition to a low-carbon economy. In the case of China, they estimate that they may only be able to uh, cover 15% of what would be a trillion dollars needed every year. So the rest of it has to come from some kind of private sector financing. I think they have a very ambitious plan that they've outlined, and they seem to be moving very aggressively in implementing it. We've seen in record time that they've become one of the world's largest issuers of green bonds. They're moving to corporate green bonds. We have been working with some of the pilot projects in um, some of the experiments that they're doing and just had a fintech group together in Huzhou where they are looking at actually using fintech as a way to uh, process large amounts of data and give environmental scores to all the companies in, a, in Zhejiang. And once they have it, they're creating an online platform for both those companies, but also projects that they're then ranking and ranking them by dark green, light green, you know, neon green and brown, essentially, so that the government has given at least some kind of stamp of approval. Whether we agree with it internationally or not is a different question, but at least they're coming up with their own standards for what is a green investment. And they have 15,000 projects already on this online platform for investors to be able to take a look at and invest in. So this market is growing pretty rapidly. Uh, they're looking at doing this internationally. We have been working with them, and this is Ma Jun's organization out of Tsinghua University, and he used to be the uh, chief economist at the People's Bank and really in many ways is the godfather of green finance in China, working on establishing voluntary lending principles for the Belt and Road. And we realize when you do these, you end up in many ways when it's a group effort with the lowest common denominator and 
they're voluntary, so they don't have teeth. But if you don't have a piece of paper and a set of principles to work off of, you don't have any kind of common understanding and way to move forward. So we felt that it was a good thing to start to pressure the lenders to belt and road projects that they should be adhering to certain standards. This issue of going from voluntary standards to actually adding teeth seems to be really critical to the whole green finance discussion, in in my view. And are you seeing this progression happening? You know, there, there's a lot of conversation about standards and voluntary principles, and uh, and this is great at encouraging good behaviour from actors that are already quite frankly, doing a lot of good things. Is there a move to start disincentivizing the bad behavior at all in green finance? And and what would that look like? Well, this is one of the reasons that we think market mechanisms are so important, that in the beginning, you have to use incentives or disincentives that come from the government. It's about good government policy, encouraging certain types of behavior. So new energy vehicles is a very good example of that. When you had the government incentivizing people to buy them, They're incentivized to produce them, and now China has the leading market for them, and they're starting to export them. We also do quite a bit of work in the Middle East and North Africa. And in the beginning, we could see that these countries were starting to change their own domestic economic agenda to attract Chinese money. Now we're starting to see, say, in the case of Egypt, for example, where they never previously were talking about sustainability, we're hearing that a lot more. They now have reduced tariffs on the import of new energy vehicles. There are two Chinese new energy vehicles coming to talk about Mm. producing in Egypt. Uh, They're creating incentives for other kinds of sustainable behavior. And what we're hoping is, as of course China really is all Chinese companies and mostly state-owned enterprises are the ones who are doing most of the infrastructure building that is going on, whether it's in actual construction or rail or transportation or in in energy. It's two to three of these state-owned enterprises. If we can be pushing them to adopt certain behaviors, we start to see it on the, the countryside too. And that's what we're starting to see in countries like Egypt and countries like the UAE, which was actually the first beneficiary in the Middle East of funding from the Silk Road fund. And that was, of course, for a clean coal factory. Yeah. Speaking of clean coal, you mentioned earlier that coal is still often included uh, under definitions of, quote unquote, green finance. There's been a lot of criticism of, uh, of those definitions. Is that criticism having an effect? Do we see those, those standards starting to become tighter at all? It is having an effect. And I think public pressure often does have an effect. And again, it's the market where if they want to attract overseas money, which China does, to invest in a number of these projects, they have to put together projects that the international community are think of worthy of investment. And there's a lot of money out there, and it's fungible. So this year, as China was putting out the standards for green bonds, there was a huge debate internally about dropping clean coal. And we'd heard for a long time that actually was going to happen. It wasn't happening on the goods and services side, and the Chinese were upfront that too much of their economy is still dependent on coal to take it out. But as those numbers changed, that they would consider that. But on the green bond side, we thought we had made some progress there. So maybe maybe next time around. That, that's good to hear. Speaking of voluntary standards and, and perhaps the lack of teeth, CSIS recently published a brief on multilateral forums uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative and how they're a step in the right direction, but ultimately they're they're voluntary, they're often quite duplicative of existing efforts. 
and quite frankly, they're um, they're regularly just too opaque for us to to really understand or, or, or to adequately assess. But luckily, we have Han here, who who's just got back from China, where she was participating in, in an NGO version of one of these BRI multilateral forums. So, Han, do you have a better sense of how committed China is to greening its Belt and Road, and and what sort of role these multilateral platforms and forums will will play? Well, I think that the fact that China is building these coalitions. So for example, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, Green Coalition, Green Cooperation Coalition, and many others, you know, that signals that they've heard the criticisms. They recognize that there's a lot of international conversations about the negative environmental impacts the projects have had in other countries. uh, And it's time to put more oversight in place. Unfortunately, at this stage, what we're seeing is that Every everything is still voluntary, and and what we're seeing is that financial institutions are you know still primarily driven by having um, you know large infrastructure projects, quicker sort of profitability, that sort of thing. I mean, sometimes it comes down to just the practical things, right? So it's much easier to finance a billion dollar coal plant uh, than to do 10 smaller renewable energy projects, for example. So that's just a lot of due diligence that someone in one of the financial institutions does not want to do. You know, there's a lot of practical barriers to having stronger support for low carbon energy, but we are seeing overall that they're, they're creating mechanisms to start evaluating the challenges on Belt and Road, whether that's in green finance, whether that's sustainable transport, Uh, whether that's environmental regulations as a whole. There's so many different areas where I think China does have mechanisms in place. They've started to develop these oversight mechanisms within China. And now, you know, trying to not export them, but really share that with countries along the Belt and Road, it it can certainly be challenging to try to do that. But what, what we do need to see is, I think, a bit more pressure so that the State Council and others realize that having voluntary standards is not enough. You need to have agencies really enforce them. So it doesn't matter if it's the Ministry of Finance or it's the Belt and Road um, sort of committee. A lot of these institutions don't have a mandate right now to go much further. They've only put out the guidelines and then really just left it to companies to, to fend for themselves. And frankly, that's not quite enough. Han raises a really good point also, and that's about capacity building. And I think we can't underestimate how much need there is for capacity building in this field. In many cases, a lot of what China is trying to do really is groundbreaking. And if you take the Silk Road Fund, for example, when we were talking about lending, the reason that their first um, project in the Middle East was one in the UAE and two in coal, it's because they knew how to assess that. And they are only lending in the Middle East and North Africa with other large institutions who can do the due diligence because they don't have the capability to do so. So even though they've been mandated to go out and lend, they really don't have the resources to to judge whether these are projects that are going to actually be viable. And we see this across the board, particularly in the provinces. The provinces have been tasked with whether it's developing green bonds or taking certain actions around how to um, clean up certain industries, but they really aren't aware how to do it and implement it. And when you have mayors who are only there for a short period of time, it often becomes a revolving issue. So I think 
over time, we probably will start to see a lot more action. And one of the reasons it's so important that the Chinese government, I think, continues to make progress on the environment part of the promotion considerations for a mayor or a governor, it incentivizes them to show that they've made progress in those areas, just like a few years ago it was showing that they created jobs or economic growth, that that's very important within the system and that we'll start to see more and more teeth being able to put into this as as you can do the capacity building. I know the Paulson Institute has worked specifically on the green investment principles. Are you starting to see that capacity improve in your work with your Chinese or or other counterparts? And and what sort of impact are you seeing those principles starting to have on on financial actors? A lot of what we end up doing really is capacity building. We tend to do small-scale seminars to focus on a very particular issue and bring in experts to work with, whether it's Chinese mayors or state-owned enterprises or even the government to educate them about particular issues. One, for example, we're looking at now is on setting up a futures exchange. They don't, they, while they have done had some experience in doing futures trading for commodities, it's still a very new field to do this for carbon. And so even finding international experts who can come help has been an issue for us and trying to get the policies and then work with officials who don't understand even some of the basics, the basics even of spot trading. So there, there's a long way to go still before we see some very vibrant market mechanisms. Does that ring true for you, Han, and your experience with the NGO platform? Is that changing the way that they operate at home? And, and what sort of influence do you think NGOs are having over China and their attempts to green their Belt and Road? So what we've seen with Belt and Road is that there's rather limited NGO engagement, but a growing recognition that if you're you know, China Development Bank, if you're ICBC or another institution you're going to receive you know, feedback from NGOs in a lot of the host countries where Belt and Road projects are happening. Now, for a long time, it was quite difficult, right? So you had people trying to fax stuff to China because that was the only way on the website that was listed to try and access these financial institutions. Maybe they did have it in Mandarin. Maybe it did not have material translated Mandarin. Uh, really, there wasn't a clear accessible channel to reach Chinese institutions, if there are grievances about a project or about potential projects and construction, planning, environmental impact assessments. What we did here at the forum is that there is a growing push to have clear channels for these different institutions so that Belt and Road um, countries and the civil society organizations in them can actually reach the right people to talk about these projects and, you know, sometimes find ways to improve them and sometimes, you know, raise objections to projects that that might happen. And so when we think about the the past and China's engagement overseas, I think they learned a lot of lessons from past hydropower projects, even ones that preceded Belt and Road that faced a lot of opposition. There was opposition to a, a lot of mining projects, particularly in Latin America, from which Chinese SOEs learn lessons about how to do community engagement. We've also seen Chinese NGOs go abroad and engage with their counterparts to talk about the best ways to uh, raise issues with the government in China. So I think there's a a lot of sort of healthy exchange and there's a a growing um, capacity for engagement by NGOs. And I think that in, in some ways, NGOs, in a lot of Belt and Road countries are, are certainly not 
all opposed to Belt and Road investment. In fact, some of them really are wondering about how to encourage more green investment from China, right? So they see that energy demand is going to happen. They want to make sure that it's coming in the right forms. And so trying to figure out the best channels to reach the government and whether it's you know going to the embassies or whether that's contacting some of the banks or companies directly, how is it that these NGOs can, can better express the demands within those countries that they actually want investment, but they want you know low carbon investment, solar, wind, or, or other things that will um, you know have fewer environmental impacts. And you know frankly, there's a lot of positive examples that we could look at for investment. I think you know getting back to your earlier question about some of the positive news, and if you look at you know Vietnam for example, where they had I think about six gigawatts uh, proposed for new solar. We know from the data from Bloomberg, New Energy Finance, and others that you know, of that six gigawatts of new solar that was approved, at a minimum, three gigawatts of those solar panels came from China. And frankly, probably a lot more. There's just a lot of data missing. Um, so there's a lot that is coming from China on the low carbon side, sort of you know renewables, wind, and solar, um, that's not properly accounted for. But that's also because these are private enterprises. So their relationship with the government and with the Chinese embassies in those countries isn't as close. Uh, it's harder for them to really have the same level of financing from the larger banks. So what are some mechanisms that we can see where, you know, the government and, you know, the BRI folks in the different ministries could really support more low carbon growth? I think that's one of the areas that's worth exploring a lot more. Well, I'll take positive news wherever I can get it. And this is one of the rare climate change conversations where I actually think I've ended up more optimistic than where when I began. So I'd certainly like to thank both of you for your time and, and for your perspectives on what has been a, a really wide ranging and, and fascinating conversation for me and hopefully for our listeners. So uh, thank you again. Thanks to Lachlan, Deborah and Han for that timely discussion. Check out some recent analysis from Han and Deborah in our bio. And thank you for listening. Find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, we love to hear your thoughts or suggestions for future episodes. Send us a note through CSIS.org or on Twitter at CSIS Energy. 